My name is Humble Gray, and I am a Mississippi farmer. So it's Sunday at First Baptist Church of Trouveau, and the Reverend Wally, he's just finished up his sermon, a right fine one, too, comparing Trotskyites to Methodists, and prepared he was, even used one of those Venn diagrams to demonstrate considerable overlap twixt those belief systems. Gosh darned theological modernism and its ethical humanistic gestalt? Yes, sirree, Bob. Anyway... His flock thus educated, the good pastor conveyed the week's community notes, including the volunteer fire department's chili cook-off, see who can make a bowl hotter than the flames they fight, a concert, too, from the band at James Morey Henson High School, featuring the music of Mr. Charlie Pride, a grand Mississippian, don't you know? Oh, and come Saturday, face-painting outside Clemmer's Value Food Store. Come out and transmogrify the young'uns into lions and tigers and such, says Mr. Wally. Delightful. But then, as he starts to conclude the service in the accustomed manner, by importuning the backslidden, not by name, but they know who they are, well, soon as he commences all that, Kira Lee Rhodes, she stands to announce another upcoming event. I'd like to remind the congregation that the Truvo Ladies Society will be having a guest speaker Tuesday night, Mrs. Rebecca Jo Cobb from the WIPP, Women Impacting Public Policy. She'll be discussing the gender gap in wages. Gap how? asked our shepherd, for this seemed news to him. So Kira Lee, she replied, the national gap, the Census Bureau confirmed gap. Why, Reverend, did you know that for every dollar a man earns, a woman gets 80 cents? To which Dave Pine stands in his pew and says, Sounds pretty sweet. How do I get in on that deal? No, Dave, says Kira Lee. What I mean is, a woman in the same job as a man earns 80% of what he does. Oh, says he. Well, good for her. And he sat down. No again, Dave, says Kira Lee. It's not good. But, says Jeffers King, ain't 80% a hefty sum? I mean, if you'd said uh, 40 or even 50%, I might have said, whoa now. But 80%, that's a mere 10 or 15 less 100. You argue, says Kira Lee, with defective calculus and flawed elation. Then she straightened her spine and said, Time's come for the pecuniary subjugation of women to cease, to derive full recompense for our labors, 100%. Well, this provoked discord within our peaceful congregation, men against the gals with calls of, can you heft bales like me? And I can heft bales like you, you and your skinny arms, Luke Standish. But auto parts, calls out Lee Coleman, a stalwart who manages the auto parts store off 315. Men buy spark plugs, brake pads, and oil filters from men. You gals won't sell so many as me, so you don't deserve so much money as me. I can lazy my days away good as you, says his firebrand wife, May. If that means weighing the Biloxi shuckers against the Braves with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells whilst paying customers wait in line. Oh, the air was charged, with none but a wise farmer equipped to set things right. So it was amid the clamor that yours truly, Peacemaker Gray, stood up and made the palms down, calm yourselves, motion with his hands, my silent importuning and dignified aspect serving to quieten the intemperance. Good neighbors, says I, 
We could deliberate all day the equivalents of workers, male and distaff, but that is not the provenience of Sister Rhodes' Jeremiah. No, sir. Truth is, women earn the same as men. A brief rumble coursed through the flock. Why, that contradicts Kiralee's submission, and is that mean versus median, and so on. But I continued, they earn the same, says I, and that's a fact. But, and here's where the disproportion arises, there is a fair deduction from female earnings. A fair deduction engendered by what I would call, now Jesus, please forgive poor humble Gray for broaching such an indecorous subject in this your edifice, but what I would call the lady time tax the lady time tax. Another frisson through the sanctuary. You see, says I, my fine Mexican field hand, my legal field hand, I'll add, Juan Pedro, informed me one fine day that his wife, Alondra, had noted something interesting in the Zare County office building where she cleans. The ladies' room, says Juan Pedro, they offer free... Well, I shan't say the word in church. I'll simply refer to it via the metaphor... "'Tis a woman's band-aid. "'They offer free band-aids,' says Juan Pedro. "'Well, isn't that accommodating of them?' says I. "'Alondra says most businesses they offer free band-aids,' he continues. "'And I again voiced my admiration for their obliging propensities. "'But I noticed,' says Juan Pedro, "'that you offer no such items in your toilet.' "'Well,' says I, "'you're my only employee, Juan Pedro, "'and you use the same facilities I do, "'and our gender enjoins no such beneficence.' "'Diablo Blanco Barato,' replies Juan Pedro, "'which I took to mean, "'true enough, old friend. "'But now it occurs to me, Kiralee,' says I, "'that the corporate world is not footing the bill "'for feminine band-aids. "'No, ma'am. "'They are instead imposing, and quite reasonably so, "'a tax on the paychecks you gals receive "'to recover the cost of these muliberal doodads.' I say reasonably because, as I informed the good Juan Pedro, a male can labor a full month without need for a cyclical convenience. Seems only just that some salacia be extracted. Farmer Gray, says Kira Lee, it would cost a business only about $5 annually per woman to stock free, she used the word, but I will say accommodations. Well, says I, if you're only losing $5 a year out of your salary, I fail to see your complaint. No, replies Kira Lee, with undue exasperation. It's 20%. Well then, says I, if $5 is 20% of your salary, you should talk to your boss about a raise, because that's not very much at all. Perhaps you should hold some sort of public meeting on the subject. At which point, Sister Rhodes put her face in her hands, the better to contemplate my sage advice. Yes, sir. That reprobate, Landry Bud Lawrence, was situated the last four months in a cabin somewhere in the southwest Appalachians, and he wasn't there to commune with the yellow buckeye, I can assure you. He was brainstorming the crowning achievement of his criminal career. See, this rapscallion, he's brought shame to Truvo for decades. Not that he was the sort of wanton as Buster Claw, whom you'll recall from a previous broadcast. No, Buster was an inveterate bully who dabbled in criminality, and only when it suited him. But Landry, he wasn't a bully at all, I'll give him that. What he was, however, was a career criminal, or so he aspired to be, having been hard at it for most of his life. 
There was the time when, age 15, he stole the high school band's instruments and sold them to the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra, claiming they'd come straight from the Vienna Philharmonic. Or when, age 18, he stole 100 scratchers from the Marathon Station in Zare County, winning all of $11.13. Or some years later, when Landry graduated to stealing cars, except he hijacked a Pontiac Aztec and had to actually pay the owner to take it back. And of course, there was plenty of fraud, bad checks, some grifting betwixt and subsequent to those episodes. And how do I know all this? Easy. Landry got caught each and every time. That's right. Every caper he pulled landed him in county. Why, the fellow's so often in jail, the post office just sends his mail straight there. Now, folks... There's a contention by author Malcolm Gladwell that you got to spend 10,000 hours at something if you want to master it. And to his credit, Landry surely devoted that time to criminality, so you'd expect he'd be more adept than he was. Instead, he was naught but a laughingstock, ridiculed by every successful scofflaw and felon in the Mid-South. Thus, he was finally left to stew over his failures and question his own competence. Then one night at Lydia Sue Amon's boarding house, his residence when not incarcerated, he was viewing a documentary on television. Not that he was one for such highbrow fare, but Lydia Sue had just the one television down in the parlor, and her boarders, they had to watch what she wanted. That was her rule. Landry had tried to remedy the situation by stealing his own television, but that just landed him another six-month stint in the big house. He reasoned that if you're going to do half a year behind bars, they should at least let you keep what you stole, but that's not how it works. So he was in the parlor beside his landlady, viewing in a desultory fashion her choice of programming, specifically a history of one Mr. Winston Churchill. I refer, of course, to the erstwhile Prime Minister of England, for those of you unfamiliar with our pre-revolutionary oppressors. And it went on about this fella's life, his American mama, his lordly papa, his correspondence and government status and wilderness years and so on and so forth. It was all a buzz and a drone to Landry, whose head began to nod in dozing. But three quarters into the hour, something caught his ears, something that caused his head to rise, his eyes to open, and his attention to focus with laser-like precision. For there came a quotation from the man who led the limey populace through World War II, and ladies and gentlemen, it was as follows. Churchill said, and I quote, Plans are of little importance. Planning is essential. At that moment, it was as if Landry's brain was struck by lightning, so greatly was he charged by the statement, for it was all at once clear why he had serially failed at criminality. I have gone about it all higgledy-piggledy, he said aloud, causing Lydia Sue to wonder what he was about. But now I apprehend that I must lay plans with utmost care if I am to succeed at my iniquitous endeavors. And with that, he gave his landlady an impulsive peck on the cheek and, owning no luggage, gathered his few belongings in a plastic trash bag. Then he headed to the bus stop and made his way to the mountains, taking up residence in that old cabin. He'd learned of the place from a former cellmate, Fenton Beglian, who used it as a hideaway after his own nefarious schemes reached fruition. 
But Fenton was doing three years at Parchment Farm, leaving the rickety 1930s structure, whose isolation made up for a lack of electricity or plumbing, unoccupied. And it was there that Landry aimed to put Prime Minister Churchill's homily into practice through careful planning of his most ambitious caper yet, i.e., a daring daylight bank robbery of Zare County First National. Now, he was well aware of the stakes involved, for capture would lead to his longest stretch ever behind bars. So it was for the next four months that Landry, who, to paraphrase the bard, had never labored in his mind till then, mapped out every detail and contingency, from faux license and credit card to the scariest make of pistol to whittle out of basswood, hint, a Smith & Wesson Model 29 classic. And having been no great shakes in English class, he took great care in wording the note he'd hand to the teller, along with sewing the mask that'd hide his identity. He even fashioned a pair of gloves from the hide of a chipmunk that up and died ten feet from the cabin, so there'd be no fingerprints left behind. And to neutralize the guard, he practiced karate moves, or what he figured were such, seeing as how he'd never taken a lesson in his life. But he figured any $15-an-hour bank guard would cower at the sight of a few high kicks and and decline to test his prowess. Finally, after 120 days of preparation, Landry felt himself ready to launch his grand scheme. He descended from that mountain and put the wheels into motion, starting with the rental of a Toyota Camry, figured a fast but economical vehicle that could reach 60 miles per hour in 5.8 seconds was just the ticket to elude pursuit, and he rented it with a license that read Winston L. Churchill, a tribute to his inspiration. The Camry, said the rental agent, it'll save you money on gas just like you saved England from the Nazis, Mr. Churchill. I don't doubt it, I don't doubt it, replied the ersatz prime minister, and off he drove. Now... It was a Wednesday, 2 o'clock, when Landry pulled in front of First National, and if he was nervous, his demeanor didn't betray it, so diligently had he planned. He fastened his mask in place, donned his chipmunk gloves, and tucked the wooden pistol in the waistband of his trousers. Then he exited the car and strode through the bank's double doors, ready for a bear. Like candy from a neonate, thought he. Candy from a neonate. Once inside, Landry saw a long line of customers— Unfazed, he took his place at the end, patiently marking time till it was his turn at the teller's window. The teller to whom he'd hand the robbery note in his back pocket. He'd waited four months for this moment, so he figured he could wait a few more minutes for his windfall. But as he stood there, hands in pockets, rocking back and forth on his heels, he noticed something unusual. Seems everyone else in line, man, woman, and child, was wearing a mask too. The gentleman in front of him, and the one after that, and the old lady with the dowager's hump, the young mama and the little girl holding her hand, and look, the tellers, and yes, even the guard, too, they were all wearing masks, mouths and noses covered. So stupefied was Landry that he up and said aloud, "'Say, is everybody robbing this bank? "'Cause you know what? It was my idea first. Now, that attracted some unwanted attention, folks.' And as it turned out, the armed guard wasn't cowed by his karate moves, $15 an hour or no. The upshot? Landry's back in county awaiting trial, and since he's then, and he's since then learned about pandemics and coronavirus and all he missed in the time he was away. 
course, since he was carrying just a wooden gun and never handed that note to the teller, he probably won't get much time, and I hear tell he's mentioned going straight once he gets out. There's an opening at that marathon station he might take advantage of, but should he return to crime, I'll weep for his soul while, truth be told, harboring some admiration for his perseverance. Yes, sir. Play me out, Zeke. (laughs) 